0: due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of mutilation, child abuse, physical assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: On Labor Day weekend in 1973, 31-year-old Anna Davidson and her family drove out to Warren Dune State Park on the edge of Lake Michigan. When they got there, her stepchildren raced off to play in the water.
2: Anna
0: put down the picnic basket while her husband Robert started cooking. It had the makings of a perfect day out.
1: That is, until her stepchildren shouted and ran back up the hill. The youngest, six-year-old Catherine, was missing.
0: None of her siblings gave Anna or Robert a real explanation as to how they'd lost her. One second they'd looked up and she was just gone.
1: Anna and her husband raced to find the nearest phone. Before they knew it, they had what seemed like the entire state police force combing the land. But no matter how hard they looked, they couldn't find any sign of Catherine.
0: It was as if she disappeared into thin air, or maybe her parents had never brought her to the lake in the first place.
1: Hi, I'm Greg Polson.
0: And I'm Vanessa Richardson.
1: And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a Cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on
0: Spotify. This week we'll learn about a tragic accident that sent Anna Elizabeth Young in search of redemption. Then we'll dive into the founding of her religious group, the House of Prayer for All People, and explore what drove her increasing violence.
1: Next week, we'll meet more of Anna's followers as her group grows. We'll stick with them until Anna's abuses finally come to light. Then we'll discover how her daughter saved the day in the end.
0: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: New season out on Spotify soon. Hello, lover
0: of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins.
1: And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death.
0: Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? poltergeist activity. Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? or aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know, but what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities.
1: Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been
0: gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story, do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days?
1: Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. As far as the official records go, Anna Elizabeth Young was practically non-existent for the first 30 years of her life. We know very little about her upbringing, except for the few facts we can cobble together.
0: We know she was born into a Kentucky Pentecostal family in 1941. She was the fifth of eight children, so we can imagine money was probably a little tight, especially on her parents' salaries. Her father, Joseph Bobo, worked in the coal mines and as a janitor, and her mother Hosanna was a maid.
1: Soon after her birth, Anna's family moved north to Detroit, Michigan. Millions of other black people had left the South before them as part of the Great Migration, in search of a better life. Anna's family wanted that for themselves, too.
0: Unfortunately, Detroit didn't provide in the way they'd anticipated, and things were tense. When Anna was about five, her mother had a mental breakdown.
1: Details are scarce about the incident, but Hosanna ended up institutionalized. That left Joseph to care for all eight of his children. After some struggle, that proved to be impossible.
0: The father accepted that he couldn't do it all on his own and needed help. In 1947, he sent his kids in different directions. Some went to live with friends or perhaps relatives, while others ended up in foster homes. Anna was in the latter group.
1: She remained with her adoptive parents for the next eight years. From what little we know, they were decent people. Still, Anna longed to reunite with her dad. By the time she got her wish and moved back in, she was 13 and their time together, what she'd long yearned for, ended sooner rather than later. Two years after going back home in 1957, Anna got married at 15 years old and left.
0: We don't know who the guy was. According to one source, Anna married seven different men throughout her life. However, there are few details, if any, about most of her husbands.
1: But one of her relationships did leave a lasting impact. At some point before her 30th birthday in the 1960s, Anna met and married a man in his 20s named Robert Davidson. Like Anna, his past is a mystery. All we could find is that he lived in Chicago and already had several children.
0: When Anna moved in, she really embraced the whole evil stepmother role. She was incredibly strict with the kids. Family accounts differ on exactly how strict she was. One stepson claimed later that while Anna disciplined them, she never crossed the line.
1: But another stepdaughter, who we'll call Sophie, begged to differ.
0: To be clear, this next part of the story revealed itself decades later. As an adult, Sophie related her account of events to Anna's biological daughter, Joy, who wasn't alive at the time of the incident. So everything we're about to say is based on that secondhand source.
1: According to Sophie, around Labor Day weekend in 1973, the Davidson household became the stuff of nightmares. We're not exactly sure what happened, but Anna's youngest stepdaughter, six-year-old Catherine, did something to set her stepmom off.
0: 31-year-old Anna went berserk. She didn't merely scream and shout. She physically beat Catherine. To make matters worse, she bound and gagged the little girl and threw her in the closet. She even locked it to ensure Catherine couldn't get out.
1: All night long, Catherine scratched on the closet door trying to escape, but no one helped her. At least one sibling heard her clawing, and still, they did nothing.
0: They must have been terrified of what their stepmother would do to them if they interfered. Although several of the kids later denied any abuse, this may not have been the first time Anna got violent.
1: Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist but we have done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Greg. Even if Anna didn't abuse her other kids, she still may have mistreated Catherine. Sometimes abusive parents single out one child as a target and spare the rest. According to psychiatry associate professor Jeanette Schneid, it's known as the Cinderella phenomenon, and sometimes the other siblings don't even know it's happening. But exactly how a parent targets a child is harder to figure out. Schneid hypothesizes that abusive parents might seize on the kids who seem harder to handle or control. But journalist Alice Kenny, who experienced this phenomenon firsthand, emphasizes that it comes down to the parent and their own issues, including low self esteem, poor impulse control, inappropriate expression of anger, and other mental health problems. Anna was never diagnosed with any mental disorders that we know of, so we can only speculate but we know her mother had some sort of mental illness. Down the road, Anna's biological daughter claimed that Anna suffered from the same mystery ailment.
1: The inner workings of Anna's mind had to be tormented. She ignored her stepdaughter's cries through the night. Eventually, Catherine's scratching stopped and the house fell silent. The next morning, Sophie dared to check on her sister. When she opened the closet door, she found Catherine curled up in a fetal position. She was dead.
0: It's unclear if Sophie ran to get her stepmom, or if she closed the door and pretended she hadn't seen anything. Either way, Anna opened the door and realized the worst had happened. She likely panicked. It seemed like an accident. She'd just been trying to teach Catherine a lesson, but she knew the authorities wouldn't believe that.
1: Instead, it appears that 31-year-old Anna decided to cover up Catherine's death. And to do it, she must have told Robert what happened because rather than turn on her, he helped.
0: That weekend at the beginning of September 1973, Anna and Robert piled their kids into the car and drove out to Lake Michigan for a picnic.
1: What happened next is hazy at best, but it seems that when they arrived at the state park, Anna and Robert told the kids to go play in the water. Then after a little while, they needed the children to come back and say Catherine was missing. The siblings knew better than to disobey their parents.
0: So, 15 minutes later, the kids ran back up the hill as instructed. Anna and Robert called the authorities. They played the perfect part of the grieving parents who had no idea where their darling little daughter was. They insisted they'd do anything they could to help the search.
1: Law enforcement cased the area for days. The search parties had hundreds of volunteers coming in from nearby Detroit, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. But it was all a dead end. No one found any sign of young Catherine.
0: On the third night of the searches, Anna and Robert took a break from the facade. They met up with another couple, and the four shared a few rounds of beer in the back of a station wagon.
1: As they laughed and drank, the local police chief happened upon the group, and the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. He tried not to pass judgment. Maybe Anna and Robert needed to let off some steam but he couldn't shake the feeling that they didn't look like grieving parents in those moments. Not at all.
0: But even if the chief had suspicions, there was no evidence to back it up. When officers interviewed the Davidson family two weeks later, all of Anna and Robert's kids told the same story their parents had. Catherine had disappeared at the lake.
1: The police assumed the young girl had drowned and couldn't find any evidence to the contrary. It was a tragedy, but there was nothing more they could do. They closed the case and moved on.
0: If Sophie's later account was to be believed, though, Anna had gotten away with a horrific crime.
1: But that didn't put Anna's mind at ease. Accident or not, Catherine's death consumed her thoughts. She couldn't stop seeing her stepdaughter curled up in that closet.
0: In her grief, Anna turned to religion for comfort, But, as it turned out, that would have even deadlier consequences.
1: Coming up, Anna starts a religious cult.
2: What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie? Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The rise and fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 years of Roswell, the tragic death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims, others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify.
1: Now back to the story. In
0: 1973, after the death of her stepdaughter, 31-year-old Anna Davidson was racked with guilt. She needed someone, or something, to make her feel better. Her husband, Robert Davidson, felt the same way. They decided they could both use a fresh start.
1: So, they and their remaining children moved to Zebulon, Georgia, about 50 miles south of Atlanta. There, Anna embraced her Pentecostal faith in a way she never had before.
0: We're not talking about just attending church a few times a week, either. Anna devoured the gospel until it consumed her every thought. Then she went old school. Old Testament, to be specific.
1: She adopted strict beliefs that included wearing full-length robes and adhering to a Levitical diet. That meant she could only eat what was written out in the book of Leviticus, essentially kosher.
0: Anna likely latched onto religious rituals like these because they gave her a sense of control over her life after a challenging period. According to a Harvard Business School study, engaging in rituals mitigates grief by restoring the feelings of control that are impaired by life-changing losses. Interestingly, the research found that believing in the effectiveness of rituals did not moderate the relationship between performing rituals and reduced grief. In other words, people don't necessarily need to believe in the rituals for them to receive the benefits of participating. Engaging in the process is enough to make them feel a tiny bit more in control.
2: As
1: Anna pored over the gospel and got more pious by the day, she felt her guilt over Catherine's death lessen.
0: It helped that Robert enabled her beliefs. He shared the sense that this was their penance for what had happened to his daughter. They'd sinned, and this was their way to find salvation.
1: In 1978, five years after Catherine's death, the couple received what they believed was proof that they were on the righteous path. They had a daughter named Joy.
0: It's not clear what the rest of the Davidson kids were up to at this point. Some of them must have grown up and left the house. Perhaps others still lived with the family. But Joy was the new baby, and she became Anna and Robert's sole focus. What happened with Catherine would not happen again.
1: In their eyes, the best way to avoid another fatal accident was to further devote themselves to their religion. So, they doubled down.
0: Their new faith gave them more than just peace of mind. It offered community, too. While in Georgia, the couple met others with similar faiths. One of those people was a man named O.D. Pugh. Like Anna and Robert, he closely followed the Old Testament, and he wanted his kids, Sharon and Thomas, to do the same.
1: In the early 80s, Anna, Robert, and O.D. got to talking about starting a more organized group.
0: The idea was to find a plot of land and create a utopian community straight from the Bible's Book of Acts. Members would share a common belief system and have all of life's essentials provided for them. In the trio's initial brainstorming, they envisioned it as a safe haven for anyone who wanted a second chance.
1: It was really Anna and Robert's personal salvation plan but they wrapped it up in a bow and made it seem like an official religious sect. Anna decided to call it the house of prayer for all people.
0: The group made it official on September 28, 1983, when they purchased a four acre lot in North Florida. There was nothing particularly special about the property. It had a few cabins scattered around, shrouded under dense trees, and was all surrounded by a fence.
1: The main appeal was that it was remote which was what 41-year-old Anna wanted. The closest town, Micanopy, currently has a population of just over 600. That meant Anna and like-minded families could live their devoted lives without anyone else bothering
0: them. But the isolation also meant only a few people had near total control, and Anna quickly became the one pulling the strings.
1: First, she gave everyone new biblical names. She changed her own last name to Young and instructed the group to call her Mother Anna.
0: Her husband, Robert, became Brother Jonah Young. O.D. became Elder Adam. His kids and Anna's daughter, five-year-old Joy, also got new names.
1: For clarity, we'll continue to refer to people by their birth names. But even at this early stage, Anna was actively ripping away their individuality to make them conform to what she wanted.
0: And she didn't stop with the names, either. She enforced an Old Testament dress code, including floor-length robes that covered every bit of skin, even in the hot Florida sun. Women wore headscarves, and men had to grow their beards long. They were also forced to follow Anna's Levitical diet.
1: It might have been a bit extreme, but none of it was illegal or abusive. In fact, O.D. said that it created a sort of fellowship, and that's part of what he liked so much. They were one big family living out there in
0: nature. Although that's a nice image, we can't ignore the pull Anna had over the group. It wasn't overnight, per se, but within a short span of time, she went from the matriarch of a family to the leader of a religious sect.
1: Which we can chalk up to Anna's extraordinary claims that she spoke directly to God. It sounds like an obvious exaggeration, considering that, to our knowledge, she never hinted at that kind of thing before. But in Florida, Anna played the role of charming, charismatic mother. She'd never lie to them. Her family, along with ODs, desperately wanted to believe her.
0: So they did. Through Anna, they thought they had a direct line to God, and they wanted to share that privilege with as many people as possible.
1: Almost immediately after establishing the commune, Anna went to the nearest large city of Gainesville, Florida, and started recruiting.
0: Her methods varied, but she always targeted the most vulnerable people. She went to hospitals, rehabs, or nursing homes, and appealed to any struggling soul she encountered.
1: Her pitch was similar to so many other religious leaders. If people followed her and the gospel she preached, she promised economic security in this life and salvation in the next. Plus, she offered free food and housing. For many, that was hard to pass
0: up. Of course, she could only afford those things because she insisted that her members donate all of their earnings to her. It didn't matter if they had a job or not. Social security or unemployment checks would do the trick too.
1: If anyone pushed back, Anna used scriptures to make her case for donations. She said it was God's will. They all needed to pull together to keep the community running together.
0: That said, Anna wasn't only focused on the money. The cash kept the lights on, but she was never very materialistic. Her real interest was in raising more children.
1: Rather than having more of her own with Robert, she recruited them instead. She created a religious boarding school of sorts, where struggling parents could send their kids for a good education and safekeeping.
0: Quite a few parents in Florida took Anna up on her offer. Sometimes they came with their kids and lived on the House of Prayer property together. Other times, parents shipped their children off to stay with Anna. They trusted her and thought she'd keep them safe.
1: At first, it certainly seemed like that was the case. Anna was strict, but fair. She assigned everyone chores to keep the property running. She taught Bible studies herself, and she instituted a community-wide thrice-daily prayer. She believed that was all she needed to lay the groundwork for a pious life.
0: Leah Vera Jackson and her kids, 6-year-old John and 2-year-old Catania, were among the first families to join the commune around 1983.
1: Leah Vera had struggled for years to take care of her children while working. When she crossed paths with Anna, it was like meeting an angel. Anna offered to help ease her burden and suggested she try out the house of prayer. Leah Vera jumped at the chance. Anna seemed trustworthy and deeply devoted to God. She was precisely the type of woman Leavera wanted around her kids.
0: But things quickly took a concerning turn. Once the children were on the farm, Anna separated them from their mom. She did the same for all the children on the property.
1: Clearly, Anna wanted to replace the other moms and become the new parental authority on the property. That's why she insisted everyone call her Mother Anna.
0: For six-year-old John, the new arrangement was confusing. He rarely saw his mom anymore, and now there was a new woman around all the time.
1: Eventually, John came around and saw Anna as his mother. He stopped missing his biological mom and focused all his energy on living up to Anna's high expectations. He wanted to make her proud, and what he did, he said it was the best feeling in the world.
0: But winning her affection was easier said than done. Anna still had a mean streak, and the simplest things could set her off.
1: For example, if she thought a kid wasn't praying enough, she'd spew Bible verses at them or accuse them of being possessed by an evil spirit. It was a genuinely scary prospect for many children.
0: Sadly, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Anna's punishments were about to get way, way worse.
1: You see, unlike a lot of fringe religious groups, the House of Prayer for All People turned bad extremely quickly. The honeymoon period was over pretty much as soon as it started. Anna, Robert, and O.D. founded the group in September of 1983. Before the year was out, things had gotten ugly.
0: Here followers described her as becoming increasingly egocentric, unpredictable, punitive, and remorseless. Adjectives that many studies have used to describe the personalities of other destructive cult leaders.
1: After a decade of observing her newfound faith, Anna decided it wasn't enough for just her and Robert to pay for their sins. She wanted to make sure others did the same.
0: Coming up, Anna's violence reaches new lows. Now back to the story.
1: In 1983, 41-year-old Anna Young founded the House of Prayer for All People in a remote area of northern Florida. It was meant to be a utopia for anyone who wanted a second chance at salvation. But within a few short months, things took a turn for the worse.
0: Anna had observed a strict faith for nearly a decade based on her Pentecostal upbringing. In its traditional form, the Pentecostal faith promotes the experience of God through exorcism, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and healing.
1: Anna pushed those aspects to the extreme. She started believing the devil was everywhere, and that her followers were afflicted. She decided she had to save them, even if she had to cross a line to do it.
0: You'd think that a religion focused on preventing sin would also preach against committing crimes. But according to a 2013 study in Theoretical Criminology, religious instruction might actually encourage crime. The authors found that many criminals seemed to go out of their way to reconcile their belief in God with their serious predatory offending. They frequently employed elaborate and creative rationalizations in the process and actively exploit religious doctrine to justify their crimes. In Anna's case, she used her religious dogma to rationalize punishing her followers for messing up.
1: It started with the adults. Anyone who sinned was beaten. Although, how Anna determined whether they actually did sin is unknown. It seems like she often decided the sinners and the severity of their punishments on a whim.
0: John Neal, who was just six at the time, remembered Anna standing in the middle of a circle of followers, berating them all and calling them worthless. She demanded that they repent their endless sins.
1: The verbal abuse quickly escalated to physical torture. She had followers whipped, beaten, and starved. All the while, she said she was doing it for them. They had violated God's laws, and she needed to cleanse them.
0: Sadly, many of her followers accepted her destructive line of thinking. Joy later called the other members broken people who idolized her mother. Anna was the closest thing they had to God in this mortal world. They were willing to lay down and take the abuse because they loved God so much. To them, Anna felt like the gatekeeper to salvation. Only she had the power to make them pure and holy.
1: But no matter what her followers did, she always found something to criticize and no one was safe. When she learned that O.D. Pew, her earliest follower, had sex with another female member, she lost it. She had to make an example out of him.
0: Before we get any further, please be warned that this next story is incredibly graphic.
1: Anna thought up the worst punishment she could to punish O.D. She ordered him to cut off his genitals.
0: O.D. must have been shocked, but she was serious. According to his daughter, Anna quoted from the Bible, "...and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell."
1: The scripture spoke to O.D. Either that, or he was just terrified of what Anna would do if he fought back. Maybe the next punishment would be even worse, or she might take it out on his kids. He couldn't let that happen. So O.D. steeled himself before going out to a cabin with a bag of ice. He numbed the area and then cut it off.
0: According to sociology professor Stephen Kent, labeling a group a cult can be tricky, but Anna's persona and dictatorial actions, along with the response from her followers, sure fit the bill. Kent says Anna ticked all the boxes to make the House of Prayer members blindly follow her. She had them living on an isolated property, where most of them had very few ties left to the outside world. She convinced her followers that they were sinners destined for hell unless they had their evil natures punished and purged.
1: In that light, O.D.'s actions are little more understandable. Anna had her hooks in everyone. Not even one of the founding members dared to defy her. Even after this horrendous act, O.D., who battled a near-fatal infection, still stayed at the House of Prayer. But if you thought that was bad, things were about to get even worse.
0: It wasn't long before Anna turned her sights on the children in her community. She would declare a child was possessed by a demon, then sometimes go to extreme lengths to get rid of the evil presence.
1: She usually starved the child, depriving them of food and water for days on end. One of her favorite tactics was to lock them in a small box where nobody else could get to them.
0: Other times, she physically beat the children in an effort to get the demon out. Remember six-year-old John Neal? He'd come to the community with his mom and sister, only for Anna to take him under her wing and treat him as her own child. He did everything he could to remain in her good graces, but as we've learned, no one was truly safe.
1: Well, except for Anna's biological daughter, Joy. Anna never physically abused her, but she did enlist Joy's help in hurting the other kids. She started giving Joy a quarter every time she told on someone for breaking the rules. From then on, Joy tattled away whenever she could.
0: One day, Joy told Anna that John stole a piece of candy. To this day, John swears he didn't. Joy made it all up, but it didn't matter to Anna. She took Joy's word for it and sentenced John to an incredibly harsh biblical punishment. He got 33 licks. One for each year that Jesus was alive before dying on the cross.
1: Anna warned the boy that if he moved, they'd start over. But poor John couldn't help himself. He was beaten with an electrical cord first, before Anna moved onto switches that tore at his skin. He was seven years old. Of course he winced. And each time he did, they started back from the beginning.
0: It was truly horrific. But Anna could always make things worse. She had his mom, Lea Vera, brought in to witness the punishment too.
1: Leah Vera watched in horror, but did nothing to stop it. She was too terrified of what would happen if she did.
0: At that moment, John realized he was on his own. For a seven-year-old, it must have been traumatizing.
1: As an adult, he could make more sense of it. He told a reporter Anna had more power than God out there at that place. She was God out there. Whatever she said happened.
0: Anna had complete and utter control over the families. An isolated beating might be harrowing, but if they spoke up, she'd make it so much worse. Accounts recall Anna taping her followers' mouths shut and putting them in tiny spaces like closets or cages for days on end with no food or water. The threat of such punishment kept everyone quiet.
1: And because no one stopped Anna, more followers gradually arrived at the House of Prayer farm. We're not sure about the exact numbers. Reports say that at its peak, House of Prayer consisted of 24 resident members, although it's unclear what year that was in.
0: By 1984, a new family joined the ranks. Gloria Benton was a poor single mother who wanted to provide her daughters some stability. She'd heard of House of Prayer and thought the community aspect sounded nice. She brought her two daughters, Sabrina Benton, who was in her mid-twenties, and Fonda Favors, who was around nine years old, along with her grandson, Marcos.
1: According to Sabrina, before they moved there, the House of Prayer site seemed on the level. Anna made sure everything was kept clean and her congregation members were all friendly. Gloria and her girls had no idea about the horrors lurking behind closed doors.
0: It was all just Anna following her playbook. She never let anyone see the truth until it was too late. Sadly,
1: Fonda learned that all too soon. Not long after she arrived, Anna took her in as her own child, separating Fonda from the rest of her family.
0: When the young girl didn't live up to Anna's expectations, the abuse started. Fonda recalled getting beaten so often and for so long that she simply couldn't cry anymore.
1: Unlike so many other families, though, Gloria didn't take Anna's every word as gospel. And eventually the two had a confrontation. As long as Anna kept Gloria's kids away from her, Gloria refused to give her any more money.
0: Of course, Anna refused to bend. She insisted that Fonda was better off with her. She'd make sure the girl grew up the right way.
1: That didn't fly with Gloria. So when the opportunity presented itself, she took her family and ran.
0: Gloria tried getting her older daughter to come with her, but Sabrina didn't want to leave. She liked the house of prayer and wanted to stay there with her son, Marcos.
1: Pressed for time, Gloria couldn't stay and convince Sabrina otherwise. She knew that if she wanted to get away from Anna, she had to go right away. She had no choice but to take Fonda and make a break for it.
0: After they left the property, Gloria and Fonda hid with relatives before leaving the state of Florida entirely. There was no way Gloria would let Anna get her hands on her daughter again.
1: Anna didn't take the defection well. In her anger, she turned her wrath on Sabrina. Rather than reward her loyalty for staying, Anna accused Sabrina's son of being full of the devil. But this time, she didn't try to beat the demon out of him. She convinced Sabrina to get rid of Marcos altogether.
0: It's not entirely clear why Anna did this. Perhaps it was simply a test of Sabrina's allegiance.
1: If it was, she got the result she wanted. Sabrina dressed little Marcos up in pink clothes to make him look like a girl. Then she took her son and boarded a plane to Puerto Rico with another cult member.
0: Once they landed, they took Marcos to a Catholic church in a poor neighborhood. Sabrina left him at the door and walked away.
1: Nobody knows what happened to Marcos after that point. To this day, it's still a mystery.
0: But one thing was clear. Anna had total power over her followers. She'd already ordered one member to cut off his own genitals. She'd bullied countless others into turning a blind eye to horrific child abuse. And now, she'd convinced a mother to abandon her son on an island. Really, the only question left was, what couldn't she get her followers to do? She would soon find out the answers.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next time with part two of Anna's story, as her violence leads to death and destruction. For more information on Anna Elizabeth Young, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's report, Mother Anna Unmasked, extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Alex Burns, edited by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Freddie Beckley cult stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson.